So we're going to be reading this morning from John chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. So for those of you here and those of you who are watching online, if you would like, I invite you to stand as we read God's word together. John 21, verses 1 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, and Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net out on the right side of the boat, he told them, and and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. And since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast. Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told them. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one who's going to betray you? And and when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that 
to you. Heavenly Father, as we, as we dive into this amazing chapter of Scripture, Lord, you know it is, it is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. There is so much to unpack. We could spend weeks and weeks, if not months, just looking at the majesty of this chapter of Scripture. But Lord, as we focus in on this idea of friendship, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we thank you that your word is going forth. We thank you that across this city and across this state and across this world on this morning as churches who are faithful to your word gather, we know and we trust that your word is being proclaimed. Lord, this morning I want to take a moment and lift up a sister church of ours who I know is praying for us in their worship service. And I want to pray, God, that your word would go forth at Third Avenue, that your people would be blessed and they would be set ablaze to make much of your name and your glory in the spheres of influence that you have placed them. I pray the same for us this morning, God. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning. I hope your, your week has gone well. And even if it hasn't, what a blessing to gather together and open up God's Word. Amen. You know, we are continuing on in our series entitled Biblical Friendship. And before we, we dive in, let me just give you a little direction as to where we're going kind of for the remainder of this year. You know, next week we'll continue on in our series and we're going to begin talking about the marks of a healthy friendship. In his book, Made for Friendship, Drew Hunter maps out six marks of what makes friendship meaningful. And so we're going to take the first three of them next week. Um, it'll be a little bit different of a sermon than what you're used to from me. It'll be a little bit more topical, but that's okay. It's okay to do that. Um, and we're going to kind of deal with these first three marks uh, of a healthy friendship. And then the next week will be the Sunday prior to Christmas. And so we're going to take a step out of our series for a minute. Uh, and I'm going to try to encourage you with the fact that the Word became flesh. And then after Christmas, we'll jump back in and do the last three marks of a healthy friendship, which will take us to the end of December. And I'm still praying and wrestling through the Lord. Initially, I had a couple more sermons mapped out in this series, but just trying to weigh through if the Lord still wants me to go that direction. So we'll find out when we get to the new year. But, you know, before we dive into all of that, as I mentioned this morning, I want us to consider John 21 and to consider specifically this idea. Pursuing depth, pushing past platitudes to purposeful pursuit. Pushing past platitudes. To purposeful pursuit. And the idea here is simply this, that any real friendship, any meaningful friendship, any lasting friendship, it will require without question depth. It has to go past these cliche sayings, these superficial interactions to a real and meaningful relationship, one that goes far beyond the surface level. And I, and I think, brothers and sisters, that if we are honest, each and every one of us, actually I know this about us, each and every one of us has an innate desire for deep, meaningful relationships. Well, why? Well, we go back to the first lesson in this series. We were built for friendship. It is hardwired into us. Listen, not as Christians. It is hardwired into us simply because we are human. 
And we are made in the image of God, which means believers long for real, deep, meaningful friendship. The lost world longs for real, deep, meaningful friendship. We are built for friendship. And so let's pause there for a minute and think about that. That means that your pursuit of deep relationships does not make you weak. It does not make you needy. It makes you human. And the reason I say that is because we live in a culture that very much has this mindset of kind of pull yourself up, rely on yourself, no one else. You don't need anybody. You got to figure it out. You got to do it on your own. And so when people are pursuing real meaningful friendships and relationships and leaning on people around them, it is easy for our world to look at them and say, you are weak, you are needy, but in fact, it just shows that you are human. You're human. Even the lost world is seeking in their own way to pursue this type of relationship that we're talking about, this deep and meaningful friendship, because it's hardwired into them. Even the lost world has picked up on the reality that in our society there is a real lack of depth to most of our friendships. The world's picked up on this. You know, a few months ago, this article came out in October. I was, I was reading an article in The Atlantic that was entitled, What if friendship, not marriage, was at the, at the center of life? What if friendship and not marriage was at the center of life? Now, let me go ahead and say this before I bring, tell you why I brought up that article. I think what they're trying to do in this article is to highlight the need for real friendship, which we would agree with. Ones that are deep and meaningful that go beyond the superficial. But I do not think that in order to elevate friendship, you have to devalue marriage. Which in some sense is kind of what this article does. So I want to clarify that even based on the title. Because I don't think that friendship should replace marriage. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Marriage and friendship are not at odds. They both point to the beautiful truth that we were made for community. And just to be even clearer, marriage is an explicitly direct picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Designed by God, given by him to make much of the Savior's love for his bride. It is important and it is beautiful. But as we've talked about from our very first lesson, marriage is rooted in friendship. Again, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. You, you cannot have a healthy marriage if you're not a real friend to your spouse. So I don't think they're at odds. But at the same time, and I want you to hear this, I believe you can have deep, meaningful, life-changing relationships that satisfy the soul and bring honor to Jesus and not be married. It's called friendship. So I don't think the answer is to devalue marriage and elevate friendship. I think our answer is to continue to highly value marriage, but at the same time, highly value friendships. So what I want you to see, though, the reason that I brought up this article was that even the lost world we live in is picking up on the fact that something just isn't right with how we do friendships. It's too shallow. It's too fickle. It's too meaningless. And in this article, they highlighted a few different individuals who are trying to live out meaningful friendships. They're going about it in fairly unique ways, but the article highlights these individuals who are trying to value real friendship. And I want you to listen to one thing that the author writes in this article. She says this, By placing a friendship 
at the center of their lives, people such as West and Tillerson, so those are two people she mentioned in the article, she says they unsettle this norm. Friends of their kind sweep into territory that's typically reserved for romantic partners. They live in houses they purchase together. They raise each other's children. They use joint credit cards. They hold medical and legal powers of attorney for each other. These friendships have many of the trappings of a romantic relationship minus the sex. She goes on and she says, despite these friendships' intense devotion, there's no clear category for them. They, the seemingly obvious one is best friend, but it strikes many of these committed pairs as a diminishment, a drift in this conceptual gulf. People reach for analogy. Some liken themselves to siblings, others to romantic partners in the soul-inspiring way that someone being thoughtful about loving you and showing up for you is romantic. You know, there was something that was interesting about this article is that the author points out that this friendship, this deep, meaningful friendship, that there's no clear category for them. And again, I shared this with you because we see that there is a hunger in our world for deep friendships. And again, if we are honest, there is a deep longing in many of us for deep and meaningful friendships. And for the church, we don't have to wonder what to call them. We think there is a category laid out in Scripture. The problem is is not that there is no category by which we define this. The problem is we just haven't walked out what it is in its full nature. You see, we know what to call it. We call it biblical friendships. It goes much deeper than many of us realize. And we'll, we'll flesh that out this morning, but the question then that so many of us are asking is, well, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where we have these meaningful friendships? How do we cultivate and grow in biblical friendships? And in essence, that was the conversation we started having last week as we looked at the need for real humility, the foundation of biblical friendship being this cultivation of a heart of humility. And, and I want to continue to answer that question of how do we get this? How do we grow in biblical friendship? And here's what I want you to see, and this is, this is very important. It's that biblical friendship requires depth. And the only way we will have depth is through purposeful pursuit biblical friendship requires depth and the only way we will have depth is through purposeful pursuit and so what i want to do is i want to focus on john 21 and see how jesus in this chapter of scripture purposefully pursues his disciples and there are five lessons and and i'm going to move through them fairly quickly I i really am this morning but five lessons that we learn, and I believe that they are immensely practical and powerful. And each of these lessons teach us how to push past platitudes or cliche statements or or nice subtleties, how to push past these surface-level platitudes and pursue this purposeful pursuit. Now, each of these lessons, if we can learn them and walk them out, I want you to hear me very clearly because I believe this to the depth of my soul, that each of these lessons, if we learn them and walk them out, they will, without question, produce deep friendships. 
So let's dive in. Here's the first lesson regarding pursuing depth. The first lesson is this. When we look at John 21, we see that Jesus made the first move. Jesus made the first move. Look back again at John 21, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. So let me kind of catch you up of what's been going on to the book of John because we literally jumped into this book at the very last chapter. So chapter 21 is the last chapter of the book of John. And so just to kind of give you some context, in chapter 19, John records the the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus to give you an idea of where we are in his life. So in John 19, he records the crucifixion and and the burial of Jesus. And then chapter 20 picks up with an empty tomb, praise God. And with Jesus now presenting himself to first Mary Magdalene. And then we read this in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 20. When it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now having said this, he showed them his hand and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So, so even here in John 20, before we get to our text in John 21, you have Jesus pursuing his friends after the resurrection. Jesus is the one who reveals himself. The disciples don't go out and find Jesus. Jesus is actively and intentionally pursuing his disciples. He begins with Mary Magdalene. He shows himself to the disciples. And then again, we read at the beginning of 21. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Again, Jesus pursued them. But, but I want you to notice something. Look, look at when it was that Jesus pursued them. John 21, verses 2 through 5. says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And friends... Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Notice where Jesus pursued them. Jesus pursued them in the midst of where they were. They were fishing, and Jesus pursued them. Jesus moved toward them. Jesus stepped in. And and in some ways, this point is a reiteration of what we talked about last week when we said that humility takes the first step. That we must be willing to, if we are going to have deep and meaningful friendships, ones that last, we have to be willing to take the first step into people's lives. We we have to be willing to step into people's stories. We have to be willing to meet people where they are. Not only physically, but also spiritually and emotionally. We have to be willing to meet people where they are. The disciples were were fishing. And Jesus' friends mattered to him, so Jesus met them where they were. And brothers and sisters, there is a lesson there for us. Some of us, and I know this to be true because you have told me this, some of us desperately want what we don't have. Some of us desperately want real friendships that are 
deep and meaningful and powerful. The type of friendship that Drew Hunter said that, that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. We want those kind of friendships. And yet, we are unwilling or too afraid to move towards the people with which we could have those relationships. Not throwing anybody on the bus, but as I mentioned, this is a common thing that gets said to us as pastors. I, I can say for myself explicitly that, that so often I get calls and texts or sit down to meet with someone and, and, and I hear their hearts cry, this longing for deep, real, meaningful friendship. They long to grow in these types of relationships. And my first question to them is always, well, what have you done to pursue them? And for some people, you would think that, that I just asked them to, to speak heresy. What, I have to do the work? Yes. Yet Jesus stepped first. Jesus pursued his disciples. Jesus was intent on cultivating deep, meaningful relationships, so he stepped first. Are you willing to do that? Because I can almost guarantee you that if you are not, you might never find the relationship, this friendship that you are looking for. Now, I'll be honest with you. I know this too. It is easier to wait for someone to pursue you. It really is. It's less taxing. It takes less work, less energy. There's, there's less risk involved. But if we want to pursue depth in our friendships, it very well may take you, like Jesus, making the first move and meeting someone where they are. Because Jesus made the first move. And I want you to notice this before we go on to the second lesson, that, that Jesus didn't stop stepping in just because it didn't go well. He didn't give up the first time that the depth and the longing wasn't reciprocated. I mean, consider Thomas in John 20, the chapter before, after Jesus shows himself to the disciples. We read this in, in, in John 20, beginning in verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger in the mark of his nails, put my hand into his side, I will never believe. And a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Thomas wasn't ready to believe initially. He just couldn't fathom that this Jesus had come back and was pursuing them. It, it was too much for him to bear. He initially resisted the truth that Jesus was trying to step in, that Jesus was pursuing them. Yet Jesus showed up again a week later after revealing himself to the disciples to make sure Thomas knew that Jesus was indeed pursuing him. See, we can't give up the first time we meet opposition to someone with, with someone rejecting our pursuit. Jesus didn't stop just because it didn't go well. Jesus didn't stop pursuing you and your heart because you rejected him one time, praise God. Here's the second lesson. Jesus was intentional. So not only did Jesus make the first move, but Jesus was intentional. I, I said this, you know, you might have picked up on this in my prayer. I love John chapter 21. 
I really could spend weeks with you dissecting this chapter of Scripture from so many angles, and I think that if we did that, it would never get old. The reason being, when you understand some of what is going on, you realize so much of, of what you're reading here packed full of significance that spans so many different parts of Scripture. Because what we see in John chapter 21 is that every move Jesus makes is intentional and has significant meaning. Let me, let me show you a few of these, and these are just a few. The chapter begins in verse 1, and it mentions the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias, it, it's, it's not a new sea. It's, it's another name for the Sea of Galilee. We're familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is this significant? Because this is the end of John's account of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And John is communicating to us that Jesus is ending where he began that he's taking them back to where he started. Because remember in Matthew 4, 18 through 22, when Jesus calls these first disciples, it says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, still at the Sea of Galilee, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. But it's not just the place that's significant here. It's not just this incredible picture of Jesus starting where he finished with his disciples. The activity is significant as well. They were fishing. The same thing that they were doing at the start. The very same thing they were doing when Jesus called them to be his disciples. And when Jesus told them for the first time that they were going to fish for men. And it is in this last interaction where Jesus is going to commission them to do that which he has told them that they would do. Jesus is being intentional. He appears to them on the Sea of Galilee. He brings them back to where it started in Matthew 4 where he told them that they would be fishers of men and now it is time. But there's even more intentionality in John chapter 21. Look at, look at verse 9. It says, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. That charcoal fire matters. You've heard me say it before. There is, not an ounce of, there is not an ounce of scripture that's wasted. There is not one word that is meaningless. That is not an arbitrary description. That charcoal fire matters. Jesus made this fire with charcoal for a purpose. Because the only other time that charcoal fire is mentioned in the New Testament is in John 18, 18, where it says, Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. Do you know what took place around that fire in John chapter 18? Peter denied Jesus three times. And Jesus is being intentional. This gets me because around this charcoal fire, Peter will be asked three times, do you love me? Jesus is restoring Peter. Throughout this passage, there is the undeniable reality that everything that Jesus is doing is calculated and it is an intentional pursuit of his friends. He calls them friends in this text because 
the only way we grow in deep friendship is through intentionality. The only way we grow in deep friendship is through intentionality. Jesus knew this, which is why he's being intentional with his friends. There is no shortcut to this. And brothers and sisters, if we want deep Deep friendships that push past platitudes to, to practical, purposeful pursuit. We have to get beyond this idea that if we simply spend time together, we will automatically grow in deep friendship. That if we just hang out, somehow this kind of friendship is just going to magically materialize and trickle down. I mean, think about this with me. We, we know if we think about it, that this isn't true because most of you who are adults, who work a full-time job, spend most of your time with people you don't have a real relationship with. Like we go in and out of offices and, 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 and we, we hang out with employees and friends, or not friends, but these people. We spend the bulk of our time awake with people. And for so many of us, we could testify that some of these people we're around the most, we might be acquaintances with them, but we have no deep, meaningful relationship if they quit and somebody took their place, it really wouldn't affect our lives that much. Now, I'm not saying depth can't happen when you spend time with people. But hear me, it's typically not the time that makes the friendship. It is the intentionality when you are together. Another way you could say that is that it's not the quantity of time that matters. It's the quality of time. But the beautiful thing is that the more quality time you spend, the more you will desire quantity. The more you will want to be around each other, that you will want to pursue one another. Let me put it another way. For friendship to move past platitudes to purposeful pursuit, you have to be intentional with your time. You will have to be intentional with your conversation. You will have to make it your aim and purpose to do one another spiritual good if you want to pursue deep friendship with that particular person. You have to be intentional with everything that you do. You know, C.S. Lewis once noted that friendships are always, and this is what he said, about something. Friendships are always about something. And biblical friendship will always be about pursuing each other's spiritual good. Always. But I want you to hear me. This will take strategic intentionality. Have you ever, maybe you've done this, have you ever been so excited, you scheduled a time with a friend, maybe you were going to go meet with coffee, maybe you were having dinner, whatever, and, and you show up, you spend time together, you get in your car to leave, and you realize that though you spent an hour together, though you spent two hours together, you really didn't talk about anything. You really didn't. Don't know them better than you did before you sat down with them. You might have had fun. might have been a good time. You might have enjoyed it. But when you look back, you're like, nothing of substance really happened. That's because, brothers and sisters, we have to be intentional with our conversation. We have to be intentional with our time. You know, one of the things that I try to do frequently is I try to... I, 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 I am a very busy person. I don't always have a lot of time, but I have time. 
And I think, again, we think that in order for us to have deep, meaningful friendships, we have to have a large quantity of time. But again, it's the quality that matters. Some of my friendships have grown and developed. We've pressed into one another because I had 10 minutes driving from here to there, and I called them and said, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? How's your spirit today? One of the things I've always appreciated about my father is that it's very rare that he calls me and doesn't ask, how's your spirit? That's intentionally pursuing me. That goes beyond, what are you doing today? Call your friends when you're in the car. One of the things I also try to do when I'm going to meet with a friend or someone that I'm going to spend time with, I try to think of questions that I'm going to ask that person before I ever get there. Okay, I want to make sure that, that if I spend time with Carlos as I'm driving to go see him, I am going to ask him how he is doing in his fight for holiness. I'm going to ask that question. I'm going to ask him how he is doing as a husband and a father. I'm going to be intentional to ask that question. It doesn't mean that's all we'll talk about. We'll probably talk about sports, probably talk about the game. But I will not leave until I have intentionally and purposefully pursued his heart and his soul, wanting to see him look more like Jesus. But without this, brothers and sisters, you will stay in the realm of casual acquaintance and never move into the category of biblical friend. And let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with having casual acquaintances. I would argue you'll have more casual acquaintances in your life than you will have deep biblical friendships. That's okay. It is okay. We've talked about that. But casual acquaintances will never be an ultimate substitute for the, for the biblical friendship that your soul craves. Here's the third lesson that we see in John chapter 21. Jesus used everyday life to promote spiritual growth. Jesus used everyday life to promote spiritual growth. Pick up reading again there in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 12. John records this. He says, The disciple, the one that Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. And since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards, the other disciples came in the boat. Let me pause there. That's such a Peter thing to do, isn't it? I feel like as John's writing this, he's kind of like, like pointing out, like, Peter, why did you jump in the, in the water? We were right by there because you got there and we met you there in the boat and we're dry. Such a Peter thing to do, though, right? Like, let me, I'm going to jump into this water. I'm going to get to Jesus. And as he's, like, swimming, here comes the boat right beside him. Anyway, I think it's funny. They were dragging the net full of fish, and when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. For the record, an analogy of their coming ministry, that the net is not torn this time, but that's a different conversation for a different day. But listen to what Jesus says. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. I love that line. Come and have breakfast. Jesus used everyday life to promote spiritual growth. Jesus was pursuing depth with his friends. And what was his formula? Invite them to breakfast. He didn't hold a conference. 
He didn't plan a church gathering. He didn't create a new Bible study for married couples that need to be friends or singles that need to be friends he, or, or you know, college students. That, he didn't do any of that. He invited them to breakfast. He invited them into the everyday life. He invited them to eat. You know, in, in Drew Hunter's book, Made for Friendship, he picks up on the power of the everyday life. And I, and I want to read you a section of what he wrote. He says this. He says, friendships feed on shared experience, life on life and side by side. Near the end of his life, the author John Stott, which for the record, only calling John Stott an author is a gross misunderrepresentation of who that man was theologian pastor but anyway the author john stott was asked towards the end of his life when do you feel most alive and here are the three things that made him feel most alive public worship enjoying nature and human friendship and stott said this i am grateful to have the opportunity to enjoy their friendship and to do things with them And then Hunter goes on and says this. He says, I love how he expressed it so plainly and do things with them. A large part of friendship, this is still Hunter, he says, consists of simply doing things together. Of course, in order to do things together, we have to be together. But how do we make space in our full schedules? Well, sometimes we don't have to. We can invite friends into what we already do. Come and have breakfast. This is what Jesus did. He invited his friends into what seems like the mundane, the ordinary, the everyday experiences, but he used those moments to pursue the growth of his friends. Depth does not require special circumstances. Rather, everyday life lived together. Depth does not require circumstance or special circumstances. Rather, everyday life lived together. Sometimes, you know, I think we, we really do overcomplicate our pursuit of friendship. We often think that if we want to pursue real, meaningful, deep, biblical friendships, the question that we ask is, is what do I need to do differently? Rather than think, who can I invite into what I already do? Do you go shopping at the same time every week? Even if you don't go shopping at the same time every week, plan it a couple of days in advance and call a friend and say, I'm going shopping. Do you want to come walk with me? Let's talk. Do you watch sports games, football, NBA games, soccer? I watch soccer. Wes watches soccer. Why can't we watch soccer together? And when the players are faking being hurt, rolling around on the ground, ask each other questions that will do each other spiritual good. How's your wife? How are you loving her well? What's been going on? What are you struggling with? Inviting them into things that we already do. You know, one of the things that we've tried to do as the Matalas, and I know I've already used my one good story about myself for the year. I mean, we're coming close to 2021, but I'll say it's more about my wife then. One of the things that we as a family have, all, have done frequently, and some of you know, we've let church members live with us, specifically single members. It wasn't charity. It's because we, we love them and we want to grow in friendships. And, and so often living together, we've invited them in to the normal rhythms of our life. And one of the things that we've done 
when people were living with us, and even when they weren't, we've invited people to come and decorate our Christmas tree with us each year. We didn't this year because COVID, and COVID stinks, but trying to be safe. But we've invited people in to do the mundane. And one of the things that's interesting is that I reflect back on that. As I reflect back on that, some of my closest and deepest friendships are with those people who have showed up and decorated the tree with us. And we've just done life together, and we've been intentional about asking questions. We've shared experiences, and it's grown us closer together. We've got to get away from this idea, brothers and sisters, of the sacred versus the secular. Well, if I'm going to have a meaningful friendship, it's got to be built around these sacred times, around church gatherings, around community group meetings, uh, around things that the church designates, right? And we've got to realize that every moment can be a sacred moment. Everything that we do can be for the spiritual good of someone else. Just invite them to eat breakfast. Use everyday life to promote spiritual growth, which will lead to real friendship as you grow together. And before you think that's too basic, that is what Jesus did. Come and eat breakfast. Do you eat breakfast? Invite someone to eat with you. Maybe you're not a morning person and it wouldn't go well for anyone. Do you eat lunch? Invite someone to eat lunch with you. Do you have dinner? Invite someone to eat. And you know what? Be okay if your house is messy because that's not the most important thing. I'd encourage you to invite someone over as you clean a house. One, you'll have somebody help you clean the house. But two, as you talk, you can promote spiritual growth. And by allowing that person to even serve you, by putting down your pride of having your messy house and letting someone come in and serve you, you are pushing for their spiritual growth because in that service, they look more like Jesus. Jesus used everyday life to promote spiritual growth. Here's the fourth point that I have for you. Jesus dealt with sin. Jesus dealt with sin. Look again at verses 15 through 17. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. And he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because Peter didn't understand what was going on, but Peter was grieved that he'd asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. And I think you've picked up on this because we've hit at it. At first glance, it, it may not look like Jesus is dealing with sin, but that's exactly what he is doing. In these verses, Jesus is dealing with Peter's sin. And Jesus is not, not merely dealing with it. He is restoring what has been broken. Jesus is, is not only stepping into activities with his friends. He is stepping into their souls. I mean, remember what we already said. The charcoal of fire, it draws our attention back to that early morning when Peter would deny the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in Luke chapter 22, they seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. And they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. And when a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. 
But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. And about an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus was not content to let sin in his friend's life go undealt with. But notice this, the goal was not to shame Peter, no. The goal was to see him restored. And brothers and sisters, we are reminded, no, 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 we are commanded in James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And then a few verses later in James 5, 19 through 20, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the air of his wave will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. In Scripture, there is an expectation that we move beyond platitudes. There is an expectation that we purposefully pursue one another. There is an expectation that our friendships will require real depth. And that cannot happen apart from dealing with sin. If you want a litmus test for whether or not you are in a biblical friendship, there is one thing I would challenge you to examine. Whether or not you deal with sin together regularly. And listen, I'm not talking about the easy stuff. Let's just be honest. I'm not talking about the cliche stuff. We're good at being cliche at talking about our sins, right? Well, I'm struggling with pride. Pray for me. I want to grow in that. Yeah, it's pride, but at the end of the day, you're really a jerk to your wife, and you need to confess that to somebody and let them push you to grow in being a jerk to your wife. Well, I'm struggling with lust. You're not struggling with lust. That's not it. Press deeper. You've been looking at a computer for four hours a night staring at pornography. We, we've got to get beyond these cliched answers to dealing with sins and press in to the grimy, dirty parts of each other's hearts because the other option is that we keep them in, we let them take dominion over our lives, and we end up losing our souls. Because whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death. cover a multitude of sins. It's uncomfortable, brothers and sisters. It's hard. But it goes back to one of the, something that one of the greatest theologians I know has said, my wife, what's the worst they're going to find out? That I am a wretched sinner in need of a Savior? We all have dirty, grimy, nasty parts of our hearts. Better to lay them bare in real friendships so that you have accountability and someone to love you and shape you and push you, push you to be holy. Jesus would not let Peter's sin go undealt with. There is no real biblical friendship apart from wrestling through sin together. 
There is no real biblical friendship apart from wrestling through sin together. Again, your friendships, no matter how strong they may seem, are missing the mark if you are not fighting for one another's holiness by laying yourself bare before your friends. You see, real friendship hides nothing. Real friends understand that every one of us is a sinner saved by grace and in need of sanctification. And real friendship knows that if I pour my heart out to you, you will not abuse what you know. But you will push, you will help mold and shape me to me to look more like Jesus. There'll be more on dealing with sin in the weeks to come. But here's the final point I have for you this morning, point number five. Jesus was a friend who had eternity in mind. Jesus was a friend who had eternity in mind. Jesus genuinely desired that his friends would be faithful to the end. And he encouraged them towards that end. Look again, beginning there in verse 18, reading through 22. True, Jesus says, truly I tell you, speaking to Peter, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. I love how he says that, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. See, this is interesting. Because Jesus basically tells Peter that you are going to die for me and it is not going to be a pleasant death. You will be a martyr. You will be killed for my name, and it will be at the hands of other people. And Peter, being Peter, I love Peter. I see so much of myself in Peter. I think some of you do too. Peter hears this, and so he looks around, right? Okay, I hear what you're saying to me, Jesus. I'm going to die. I got that. I like the part about glorifying the Father. I'm going to die. And as he's looking around, he sees the one who Jesus loves, the unnamed disciple i i tend to believe it's john doesn't matter so i'm gonna say john for the purpose so he looks and he sees john he says jesus what about him what's gonna happen to john and jesus responds don't worry about that that's between him and me but as for you follow me be faithful until that end and jesus as he loved his friends and he, he loved them and he pursued them deeply and he did so with eternity in mind. He knew that what mattered most was not whether their life was easy, not whether they had a good time together, not whether they caught the game. Ultimately, Jesus cared that they were ready to meet the Father and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, that is what our friendships require. We must enter into friendship with eternity in Mine, wanting to see our friends ready to stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We must enter friendship with eternity in mind. 
And brothers and sisters, just move being intentional, using the everyday for ours and others' spiritual good, dealing with sin and keeping eternity in mind, our friendships will go deep. Our friendships will be strong. And at the end of this, by God's grace, we will look more like Jesus because we had one another, presented holy and blameless before our King. But as we end this sermon, let me say this. What makes this possible is the longevity and consistency of the relationship. Think about what Jesus endured with his disciples. How many times did they not get it? They tried to cast out demons and didn't know what they were doing and they jumped on top of them. Jesus had to save the day. They were constantly fearful when the winds winds blew and the waves crashed. They didn't get it. One of them betrayed Jesus. One of them denied Jesus. One of them doubted Jesus. And at the end of all of that, as Jesus stands on the shore, He says, friends, friends. He was committed to them. And the reason for that is because Jesus understood friendship to a different and deeper degree than we often do. Track with me here as I I bring this thing to a close because this ending is so important. Perhaps we have to rethink how we understand what friendship is. See, we we have to, to build our friendships on something stronger than merely earthly affection and mutual interest. Jesus built his friendships on something so much deeper. Earthly standard. Jesus should have abandoned these guys long before they made it to John chapter 21. Many of us would abandon our friends for far less before we came to a John 21 in our own lives. But Jesus was faithful. Why? Because Jesus understood the nature of friendship. But he wasn't the only one. Scripture has told us what friendship is, and it's so much deeper than what we think. We see this understanding way before Jesus. We see it in 1 Samuel 18 between Jonathan and David. In 1 Samuel 18.3, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Now, this is interesting. Friendship between Jonathan and David was built on a covenant, a covenant that endured even in hard seasons. And we know this because when they made the covenant in 1 Samuel 18, everything was going good. But then you get to 1 Samuel 20 and things aren't so good because Jonathan's father, the king Saul, is trying to kill David. And David starts questioning Jonathan like, look, dude, are you really there for me? Are you going to have my back and all that? Are you going to betray me? Am I going to die at the hands of your father? And listen to what Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 20, 12 through 15. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may the Lord punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away. So you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. 
But if I die, don't even withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And one commentator notes this about Jonathan's response. Listen to this. Jonathan repeated the sacred name of God, which appears as Lord in the English translation five times in these verses. He wanted to emphasize that he had made these covenant promises with Jonathan's covenant with David was now part of Jonathan's relationship with God. In these matters, Jonathan considered himself responsible to God. And as Jonathan carried out his promise to God, so David would have to trust God. Their friendship was not something that they had chosen to do, but God himself had made them friends. And as I have mentioned before, I think the Bible speaks deeper about friendship than we often do. Like Jonathan and David, Jesus would not give up on his friends in John 21 because of the covenant of love. His friendship was built on a covenant. The same love that makes us friends with Jesus as well. The same love displayed on the cross. The same love sealed in His own blood. Take this cup. As often as you do this in remembrance of me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And it is that covenant that secures your friendship with Jesus. And if we are ever going to be friends like Jesus, our friendships have to be built on a covenant. Where we understand it's not just me and you, but it is me, you, and God. Any one of us who are married that understand the weight of our significance know that if we fail our spouse, we fail God. Some of us as friends need to realize that if we fail the friendships that God has placed us in, we not only fail them, we fail God. It is a matter of faithfulness. When we want an example of what this covenantal friendship looks like, we look to the cross where Jesus showed up, right? I mean, I mean, in the gospel, you see every one of these points. Jesus made the first move as he was pursuing us as friends through the gospel. He showed up. Jesus was intentional. He intentionally lived the life that we could not live. He followed the law and kept it fully. Jesus dealt with sin, praise God. He went to the cross taking our sin that separates us from God and he nailed it to the cross was buried and raised from the dead three days later. And Jesus, he uses everyday life to promote spiritual growth in us still to this day, does he not? Are you not at times shaped by the mundane and the seemingly unordinary to fix your eyes on Jesus and see how amazing he is when you see the beauty of God's creation? Everyday life to promote spiritual growth. And Jesus loves us with eternity in mind. He died on the cross because our sins separate us from God. And through his death and resurrection, we can be restored for eternity with God the Father. That's the message of the gospel. And I just want you to know if you are listening and if you are not in Christ, I invite you to receive what he has done for you. Because without Jesus, you will never have these kind of friendships that we are talking about. But what's even more important, you will never be friends with God apart from Jesus. But for those of us who are in Christ, because of Christ's covenant, we now can pursue covenantal friendship that is deep and meaningful. And at the end of all of this, because of our friendships, we will look more like Jesus. Let us fight for that kind of friendship.